The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. This morning we are continuing, and this is not separate from, uh, we talk about God's intent for the church. This is why we are here. God's intent for the church is not that we come and be comfortable. We are a royal priesthood. Whereas in the Old Testament, the priests stood between God and the nation of Israel. We are the priesthood who stand between God and those out there who don't know him. I feel the burden. So we've been talking, we started this month in Ephesians 3. We talked about that God's intent was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We looked at Ephesians 2, and we looked at that whole transition that God didn't just come to give us a more comfortable life, he didn't come to meet all my needs. And all my wants. He took me from death to life. While we were far from him. While we were rebelling against him. He reaches out to us. And you might go again like I can do often. I wasn't that rebellious. I was a seven year old kid growing up in a Christian home. How rebellious can you be? Well we've got two three-year-old grandchildren and we didn't have to teach them no we didn't have to teach them to want their own way it is human nature it is born in us and so God took us from that self-centered it's all about me to calling us to lay our lives down for others he took us from rebellion to partners in the gospel. Then we looked at Ephesians 4, noting that as an essential element of God's plan for our salvation, there was this diverse distribution of spiritual gifts. And we looked at Ephesians 4, which talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And we know that while the gifts are given to each one, they are in fact given to us collectively so that the whole body grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And when many parts aren't doing their work, it places a greater burden on those that are. Last Sunday was a particular focus on 1 Corinthians 12. We looked further at the diversity of gifts and I used this slide which picks up on Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 and then a gift list that's in verses 8 and 10 of chapter 12, verse 28, uh, then into verse, uh, chapter 13, the first three verses which we'll look at uh, this morning um, and then Romans 12, 7 to 8. There are other gifts mentioned elsewhere in scripture but those lists are pretty... Um, encompassing for most of the gifts. 
And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you know, when I was preparing last Sunday, I planned to finish on verse 31, which is the last verse of chapter 12, and I, God wouldn't let me do that. Well, something wouldn't let me do it anyway. And it was just this week that I got a different insight that I've ever had before. I'm not saying it's the right insight, it's just a different way in which people interpret that verse. So we look at that verse. It says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. But when I read that, I've obviously got the question, so what are the greater gifts? What are the greater gifts? I've read this week that some consider that as a slight mistranslation, that it's actually more an accusation than an encouragement. On the encouragement point, it's seek out the greater gifts, but then becomes the question of what are the greater gifts? And so I look through Paul's writing, particularly to the church at Corinth, and we find this mention to greater gifts, but that doesn't say which are the greater gifts. If we go back a little bit, we're told that while our presentable parts need no special treatment, God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it. So maybe those are the important gifts, but, but what are those gifts? What are the gifts that we treat with special honour that are actually otherwise seen as less presentable? Over the years, as I've read this, my, my, my mind has always gone to the story in Acts 9 of Dorcas, or Tabitha as she's also known. She was a seamstress. And then one day she ups and dies. Fortunately, Peter's in town and Peter comes into the house. And Peter went with them and when he arrived in the room upstairs where she was lying, where her body was, all of the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. It seems that Dorcas was a seamstress. It's kind of like, I don't think that's just a, oh, by the way, she used to, I think that's why they brought her back. She was, had a gift of serving. And she touched so many lives. And we go, oh, she was only a seamstress. No, she wasn't. She touched the lives of so many widows and orphans that the widows were weeping over her passing. Maybe I'm being fanciful. But I kind of think we do underrate the gift of serving. The gift of service. Not just serving in the way we all need to serve one another, but a special gift that some people just seem to be able to pick up on any task, whatever needs doing, and do it in a way that builds up the body of Christ, as it seems to me Dorcas was doing. Then in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, I, like every one of you, would, I, I, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather you have prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. And it's like, well, but that's only two gifts being compared and, and, and one slightly more important supposedly than the other unless there's interpretation. It's not an outstanding list of the greater gifts that we should desire. And so in the past, my go-to default verse has been actually in Psalm 37, 
which says, take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And so my advice to most people has been, delight in God and see what he stirs a hunger in you for. See what he stirs a desire for you. And, and I find as I talk to different people, they have different desires that God places in their hearts and, and that seems to express in the gifts that he's given them. So maybe that makes sense to me. However, Rollo's thoughts have this in, sense of encouragement. Others have interpreted the original text to be an accusation. As if Paul is saying, you, instead of uh, now eagerly desire the greater gifts, some think Paul is saying, you eagerly desire the greater gifts, but I will show you the most excellent way. It's almost like the understanding is that what Paul is saying is, you all want the most excellent, you always all want the best gifts. You, you always want the most desirable gifts. But I want to show you a better way. I want to show you the most excellent way. Now, I don't know whether that's correct or not, whether that's a correct interpretation. It's not the most popular interpretation, but it certainly fits the context of the passage because they're all arguing over who was more important and who was less important. And it certainly fits human nature as I know. Most of us want to be, well, some of us don't want to be up front. Some of us are actually quite happy in the background, but if God calls us into the background, we kind of, some of us go, oh, I don't want to be in the background. I don't get acknowledged for all the things I do. Either way, as we move on to explore this more excellent way, the more excellent way, it's not about what the gifts are, but what is the best way to use whatever gifts God has given you? And so he opens in 1 Corinthians 13. Well, he doesn't because we've got an artificial line, which is why some think the the line between 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 should actually be in the middle of that sentence. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I'll show you more excellent We can debate that. But in debating that, we kind of miss what Paul is actually saying. So he opens, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I want to note that from this text, and from my understanding, there are at least two different gifts of tongues. Some who speak with the, with the tongues of men and some who speak with the tongues of angels. I think it was David shared something on Facebook the other day about a, a guy who had been bringing words of prophecy in the church for a number of years and someone else had been interpreting the, 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 the bringing a word in tongues and someone else was interpreting the word in tongues. And this particular Sunday, a young German man turned, I think it was a young German man, turns up at church and says, does he know how to speak German? And the question was, well, we didn't know it was German. And I've heard that before. I've heard someone walk past the room and hear someone speaking, praying in fluent Japanese. Someone else I've heard of praying in, in fluent Hebrew. Not a language they've learnt until they thought it was just the the tongues of angels, but sometimes it's the tongues of men. I talked last week about sometimes in our exercise of gifts we get these extremes and none more so than around the gift of tongues. 
on one end of this theological spectrum, it is shunned and even reviled, treated with disdain. And at this other end, it is exalted above all other gifts. We see the division in our churches, but we also saw the division in the church in Corinth. This lack of understanding. See, chapter 12 was all about spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 is all about love, and chapter 14 is primarily all about the right use of tongues. Including, don't despise the gift of tongues. It's also fascinating to me that if we look at that list out of the four lists or five lists that are up there, the three all in Corinthians where they're having a problem, particularly around, probably around tongues by the sound of chapter 14, it is still listed in each of the gift lists along with a range of other gifts. But again, without further major comment on my behalf, as we read through 1 Corinthians 13, listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if, even if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, the old King James used to say, if I surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. That kind of deals with the whole gift issue. It doesn't envy. I don't want the gift that you've got. I want whatever God's got for me. And it doesn't boast. It doesn't say, hey, what I've got's better than yours. It's not self-seeking. Sorry. Um, it does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, or rejo but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. I don't know about when you read that, you know, I've used it so often at weddings, everyone wants it at their wedding. But that's a tough ask. As you read about it and reflect it, that's a tough ask. Because it's not talking about a human emotion. It is talking about the character of God. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, 
and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You see, while we live in the world, the church, the body of Christ, has a job to do. We have a task that we have been assigned to do together. And when we leave this world, when we enter into his presence, task completed. Our work will be done. His work in us and through us will be completed. And in his presence we will have everything we need. I love this passage in Revelation where John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Keep that in mind as we go back to 1 Corinthians 13 in the last verse. For now we see it, or towards the end of the passage, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. All those questions answered. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Some translations say these three remain and others say these three will remain. I think I'm more comfortable with these three remain. Because for now, I believe that faith and hope, like the gifts, remain for now, while there is a work to be done. If we go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, it says, Therefore, we are confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are at home in the body, as long as your heart's still beating, 
We are at home in the body and we're away from the Lord and we live by faith but not by sight. But when we stand in his presence, when we are away from the body and at home with the Lord, then as the song says, our faith will be made sight. We won't live by faith anymore. We won't need faith. God himself will be our God. He will be seated on his throne in front of us. And everything we hope for will be ours. We won't need to live by hope anymore. Hope is an expectation of what is to come. In his presence, everything we hope for. And if there are a few things you hope for that he's not going to have, you didn't need him anyway. Everything we need and we really hope for is going to be satisfied in his presence. When I see him face to face, I will know and fully know. And I will know and fully understand. And I will have no need for hope. So the gifts and faith and hope will pass away when that which is complete comes. When we stand in his presence, task done, job completed, we are at home in the presence of the Father. But love will remain because God is love. Love is the greatest for now and for eternity. For now, love creates a safe place for us to discover, develop and deploy our gifts. But it's so much more. Love is not Sorry, Michael, you actually used the phrase earlier. If only people would play nicely. That's not... Love is much more than just playing nicely. And I know Mike knows that and believes that. Amen. We're told in Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Playing nicely sometimes means avoiding the truth. But we must speak the truth in love. Some of the people who have loved me the most over the years I know are those who have stepped in at the toughest moments and spoken truth. But there's more to it than God's ultimate plan is not to save humanity. We go, but isn't that what it's about? No, God's ultimate plan is not to save humanity. His primary objective is not to save you. It is to love you. Salvation is what he does. Love is why he doesn't. We all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. But the goal is not salvation. The goal is to be in his presence. For us to be in his presence. To have us, him in our presence and us in his. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20 Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Standing outside the door of a church says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 
God wants to save us so that we can be with him forever. It's the being with him forever is the thing. It's the motivation why he started and it's the motivation why he continues and it's what he will lavish on us in eternity. Jesus said in the upper room, he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. He just wants us in his presence. It is the nature of God. He loves his creation. And everything else was so that he could love us, so that he could draw us close and he could welcome us. On Friday, I took the opportunity to go through to Wauku to visit David and Minika. For those of you who remember David and Minika, who were here about 18 months ago for a couple of years. And I try to go out there quite regularly and catch up with them and just see how they're doing. And as I was driving back, I was thinking about my message this morning and I was reflecting on the passage where Jesus was asked, So, what's the greatest commandment? And uh, he gave the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. And I go, I know that. I've preached on it so often and I heard the question coming back that Jesus heard. So, who is my neighbour? And Jesus goes on to tell the story of the good Samaritan. This is the one, this is the neighbour that we are to love. Jesus makes the point that your neighbour is not someone in your family. It's not someone who comes to your synagogue or church on a Sabbath or on a Sunday. It's not even simply someone in your street that you like or someone you work with that you like. Your neighbour is the person that you will meet when you're walking down the street this week who has a need that God has equipped you to meet and your heart reaction is, I'm going to look the other way and cross the road. That's the one we'd love. So love is patient, love is kind. That's kind of good when we're, when we're friends. But when it's the person you want to avoid at all costs, love is patient. Love is kind. Love speaks truth. That love description which was already up there becomes so much more challenging when we remember that our neighbour is a person. You remember COVID going out for a walk in the first lockdown? And people would walk along the street and they'd see you come in and they'd cross over because that's a good Samaritan will cross over the street to reach the one who God is saying, go and help them. Be there for them. So as we continue in the weeks, months and years ahead, we've just had four weeks talking about God's intent for the church. I've been pastoring since I was 29 
on and off and on eldership at other times. And I still don't fully understand God's intent for the church. It's a continual journey of exploration. Gifts, love. But my prayer is that our prayer will be that we will think, not so much that we will think less about the people around us, but that we would think so much more about the people that we would rather turn our eyes from and cross to the other side of the road. Why? Because Paul reminds us in Romans 5 that while we were God's enemies, Jesus crossed the road. No, he didn't cross the road. He came from heaven to earth. While we were his enemies, God came that far to meet us, to love us, so that we could one day be with him forever. And I finish with a passage that I have used so often and I will keep coming back to. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. And our plea, our prayer, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. That doesn't mean we're going to go and grab that guy who's on the other side of the street that we'd rather avoid and grab him by the neck and say, be reconciled to God. But we're going to look to move in wisdom and understanding and manifest the love of God and exercise the gifts that God has given us and by his spirit see the least and the lost and the last brought back to the Father. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatitu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.